Welcome to Skeptex, the weekly show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news, politics and research. I'm Nayana. And I'm Josh. And today we're joined by two uh, very special guests, John Nash and Charlie Smith, who have written a, a really cool paper that we're looking to talk about for Demos. First of all, I think we're going to jump straight into the questions here. Mm-hmm. So I think, Charlie, you, you joined Demos for the purpose of writing this report. So maybe starting with you, what brought you to, together and, and to writing this, this paper together? Yeah, I was um, lucky enough to kind of meet John for my DFIL research. Uh, John's a very uh, interesting voice, I think, in the identity landscape. A uh, bit of a, um, how, how would you describe yourself, John? I, I get in a lot of arguments. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, we, I mean, we had a fantastic interview and uh, I wanted to stay in touch and sort of, you know, stay involved in John's project, which he explained to me, which I'm sure we'll get into later. And yeah, I, the, the opportunity then came up through the ESRC to do um, a three-month internship with Demos, which was a nice break from the research. And uh, yeah, great opportunity to get stuck into this, this project and this paper. Yeah, so we had a brilliant time working together in, on, at our offices in Whitehall and just sort of getting stuck into an idea that I've been working on for quite a long time, but we, we finally kind of uh, captured and, and put into the rewiring the web paper. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, um, I mean, that's kind of the focus of today's discussion, but this idea of like rewiring the web or how the web should work is such an amazingly ambitious kind of title for a report. <laughs> what made you think about it like that? And how do you feel about proposing something that's so, yeah, so ambitious? So I think this happens quite a lot when you're looking at a problem. You can look at a very small problem and you, then you, you focus on it. You think, okay, what's causing this problem? And sometimes the answer is something that's slightly bigger and in a different place. And then you look at that and mm. you, you, you end up yeah. getting to this point where, at least this was the journey that I went on with this work, it became clear that a lot of the problems we have today, anti-competitive, data misuse, privacy, this just across the whole kind of tech policy landscape, a lot of them stem from this fundamental flaw in the mm. web, which is our dependence on just loads of personal information. And if you, what we did in the start of the paper is we looked back at the history of the web. So if, if it's just a tool for sharing academic papers among kind of military and civil researchers, then <laughs> fine. But today, as we all know, you can order groceries, you can you apply for a mortgage, and a lot of the web has changed, but some of the fundamentals uh, haven't. And so um, this was a very sort of practical look at how you upgrade that part and uh, approaching it in a way that brought an awareness of what, what are the tools at our disposal. So some of those are technical, some of those are institutional, some of those are regulatory. Um, people often look at just the technical and they come mm. up with some radical, crazy idea that's never going to work. So <laughs> this was a chance to bring together all this stuff and make what we think is a really ambitious but like viable, doable uh, proposal that I'm pretty confident in 10 years, 15 years, like this is the future we'll be living cool. in. Yeah. That's amazing. And you mentioned um, practicality there. Charlie, this is a bit of a, I wouldn't call it a break from the default maybe, but a, a, a brief um, sort of sidestep into doing something maybe a bit more applied and a bit more practical. Just sort of as a, as a PhD student here, of course, how did, it, how did it feel? How much did you enjoy taking a slightly um, yeah. a different step uh, at this point in your PhD? It was fantastic. I think the main thing was uh, working with a co-author who had such clear ideas about what they wanted to do. So, you know, I think my job was really to come in and work with you, John, to kind of get this down on paper after, you know, you'd spent years developing these ideas. And that was just, you know, an amazing opportunity. Um, we also required so much more kind of uh, interaction with other stakeholders that, you know, this has brought together 
uh, the Digital Regulators Cooperation Forum, which is made up of a load of bits of government, uh, other civil society, non-profit sort of actors that we've been talking to, and a load of companies. So, you know, compared to sitting in the library on your own day <laughs> after day, you know, Googling papers and things, this was a much more kind of hands-on collaborative process, I think, all the way through. And that shaped, that, that did have an impact on what we proposed. So mm. especially this, the CMA, the Competition Markets Authority were very involved because they've got yeah. this big challenge mm. coming up of mm. what is a pro-competitive intervention look like. So what was yeah. the process like for you? Because Charlie came on, but it sounded like before that you'd been thinking about working on these ideas for a really long time. And then once Charlie came on and once you were both working to write this report together, what was that actually, what did you do to kind of develop these ideas? Yeah, so um, we would start the morning with coffee and a whiteboard pretty Biscuits. much at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd just go through section by section. And that was just me downloading a lot of this stuff. So um, this project has been through, it had a working title of Foundation 2 years uh -huh. ago that people know it by. And, and uh, mm. previously to that, it was looking at how you do sort of identity in a more decentralized way. There's a lot of sort of outdated models when it comes to identity, especially in the digital identity debate. There's this carrying over of a lot of the language of a physical identity that mm -hmm. you that you carry around in your wallet mm -hmm. and you show to people and we've just sort of gone why don't we just do that digitally and of course that's not how it works right you change the when you move from kind of analog to digital tools there's all sorts of things you can do differently and yeah. this is some of the rows i get in with people are <laughs> let's not do why does it have to be a wallet you know yeah. why does your digital identity have to just be all your personal data but in digital form yeah and the answer is and as, as anyone who's read the paper will know it doesn't yeah but you need to then tell the whole story. Sure. So I, I noticed in the kind of, uh, as well as the acknowledgements that it's clear that you drew, and as you say, a lot of people, uh, it's a, officially a provocation paper. Does that sort of title or that um, scope sort of shape what you wanted to, to do with it in terms of the sort of outputs? It, I, yeah, it became clear during the course of it that there was a lot more work to do. And right. So we've got some sort of partners we were talking to who are interested in doing a sort of economic analysis because mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff, there are very specific benefits to individuals, especially sure. around something like fraud or identity, where you could be the staggering amounts of, of cost to individual citizens and, yeah. and consumers. Uh, and so by drawing some of that stuff out, you can say, this is the economic benefit, do a legislative analysis, look at what laws would need to change, do a, mm -hmm. what was the third one, some of the technical analysis. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we'd quite like to build the system in a sort of sandbox way that had data moving around in the way we describe. The way you've talked about it has always been as a kind of North Star, like you wanted to plant a flag in the ground and mm -hmm. say this is, you know, as, as, as we develop things over the next five, ten years, what should be shaping that vision? And it was, you know, this provocation mm -hmm. paper. So, yeah, mm -hmm. this is something I think we're, we're hoping to come back to over and over and develop. But it's also mm -hmm. a kind of guiding light for where we, sh we think the web should go. And it's quite a good model, actually, to say, to do this exercise where you sit down and you go, how should this thing work? Mm -hmm. Irrelevant yeah. of any current oh, political yeah. reality. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you do create this kind of like, here's a good destination. And having been involved in tech policy, I, I, you see that's often lacking, right? Mm -hmm. There is no like, the, no, you're not marching towards some vision of how things should no. be. It's very reactive. And how do we say something the opposition is going to say? And yeah, I think academia has that problem as well, where you're so focused on the little, the, the kind of minutia um, that you often end up sort of not thinking about, well, what do I, where do I want to go? Where do I want this field to be in five to 10 years? You're focusing on moving the dial like tiny degrees, aren't you? Mm. Um, so that must have been kind of a nice change for you is to think about something that actually is going to change people and change society, hopefully, in some way. Yeah, I mean, if this comes off, it will be, you know, totally revolutionary. And, you know, everyone from my, you know, grandparents to my <laughs> children will be, would be affected by it. Mm. Obviously, you know, I, th I think we've got to, 
yeah. you know, we don't want to get too excited, but that's where it could go. And that's the beauty of a five to ten year vision, yeah. right? You can you can be ambitious and. Uh, but at the same time, be practical and realistic, I, I think. Well, and we, we had conversations with, um, you know, like advertising experts. And, you know, that added a whole chunk to the paper that we hadn't really thought about. Yeah. Um, you know, we got to understand this, this very opaque, bizarre market and how it works and, the, you know, the oodles of personal information. And we sort of said, well, you know, the great thing is this idea can fix that as well. And, and payments and, you know, and, mm. and, and, and all these different use cases that come back to this fundamental flaw of personal data. Yeah. yeah. So I think you, uh, we've, uh, you know, we've heard both from you now and Chloe reading the paper, why we should care about this. I think that's very clear economically, ethically, and so on. What would you say are the biggest obstacles to that, even in a 10-year horizon coming to pass? I imagine much of it political, perhaps. It seems like the technical is maybe something which is also, which is quite, quite viable. Um, but what would you pinpoint as the key kind of obstacles where if this sort of doesn't isn't in place in 10 years time you think oh that's that's probably why yeah charlie you use the word if this gets pulled you know if we can pull this off and what's the what's the barrier to the if basically well so the the core of the argument we make is that we need to move from a web built on lots of personal data to one built on trusted connections so essentially a model of like questions and answers so if an organization Mm. needs to know something it can ask for that and that request can be routed to the logical recipient and the device is the is the is the sort of junction point there. And we make a common carrier argument that our smartphones have become the thoroughfares of our digital lives, and we should regulate them like common carriers. And yeah. within the, the framework we propose, and that that requires a degree of like boldness and bravery because it, there are some losers in the model we describe. If you're a car, if you're a payment processing company, if you're Visa or Mastercard. Mm your business is to operate as an intermediary, just as HMV and, and Blockbuster once did. And then we had this seismic change of the internet and it cut out those intermediaries. Yeah. I think we're on the precipice of a similar revolutionary change in how we move information about. And that's not just shopping online, it's like buying a house. Mm. Why is buying a house not a one-click process that just routes loads of <laughs> anonymized information between land registries and estate agents? Mm. Instead, it's like, send us your parents mortgage deed or whatever you had yeah. to do the other day and, you know it, it really we are really living in a kind of in a very rudimentary era when it mm. comes to how we do anything online yeah i mean that, that's one thing that that stuck out to me from the paper is the role of devices in this i mean i'm literally holding a smartphone to my face as i <laughs> record this you know demonstrating the centrality of smartphones as you say to to our lives um, I suppose one uh, upside of the proposal within that context is that currently there is essentially a duopoly of smartphone platforms, Android and iOS, and that seems set to continue for better or worse for, for the time being. So in my mind, that duopoly would be quite useful for sort of propagating this uh, to those two platforms. But is it scalable in a market where, say, there's three or four like major smartphone operators? And do you see that te- that kind of implementation uh, taking the form of kind of hard legislative demands or soft working with Apple, Google, whoever else to get into action? So I think we're not naive on this. We make a like, this is going to be an extension of common carrier law. You're going to be legally compelled to do this. But there is historical precedent. If you think about the the iPhone, when it launched, they had no app store. Mm-hmm. So the only software you could access was software that Apple wanted to put on your device. Mm-hmm. And then they made this decision that they should open up that device to an extent, allow on software, most of which they're not going to make any money for because it's going to increase the utility of your device. Mm-hmm. Now, if if the possibility to increase your the utility of your device again comes along, and we're talking about being able to shop online without giving any personal information, without mm-hmm. the risk of your card details being stolen, very high levels of identity assurance, basically things that take minutes and hours today becoming seconds 
that's a significant again a significant bump mm. in utility so we'd expect depend you may see sluggish adoption by one platform but mm. not another and then i think i think that would that would level out mm. but on the duopoly point i think part of the framework we propose would help would help in that respect because if you do switch from an apple phone to an android phone you should be able to do that seamlessly mm. right you shouldn't yeah. you should be able to like sort of restore your android device as your apple device but if you're gonna if you're gonna compel a company to do that then you need the technical yeah. the regulatory the institutional framework that make that possible mm. yeah. yeah it sounds like a really big part of this as well as the privacy element and like you know the kind of protection of identity is think about convenience as well for consumers because mm. You know, you talked about how when you have to fill out things for when you're looking for a flat, you have to source so many documents from different places. It's the same with, you know, like healthcare and kind of things like that. Um, and, you know, these things should be easy. These things should be easy for us. And that's really hard to imagine is something that's both convenient and easy for consumers while also being like protective, I guess, of, 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 of consumers' privacy. So how did you, I mean, you're, you're nodding a lot, Charlie. So you obviously, this has obviously really struck a chord with you because that's really interesting to me about what you're saying and also about the report. Um, how did you frame those ideas and think about how convenience plays into this? I think coming into the project, you know, um, I was very used to thinking about the kind of technical aspects, the, yeah. the regulation, you know, quite, quite dry things in a way. And John really impressed upon me the, the importance of usability mm. and that, you know, if you, have a, you can have the best system in the world and, you know, we... We, we sort of joke sometimes about some of these kind of blockchain uh, solutions and think, you know, bits of crypto that are, you know, technically massively impressive, but just, you know, no one's ever going to use them. And you're quite right, you know, all these documents, you know, you have to manage uh, usernames, passwords, memorable words, PIN numbers, private card keys. numbers, yeah. private, you know, it's just not realistic. So, a, you know, a key pillar of the proposal was we need to come up with a system that does all those things that are so great and yeah. it does it technically impressively, but that's also usable. And, you know, when John first showed me, I think, the mock-ups for the, the interface, which would be standardized across devices, OSs, you know, this, this would be an interface that people grow to trust and to kind of understand because it's the way you do everything. And it just works everywhere. And it's very transparent to the user what's happening. You know, there's minimal interaction required and they, they know that everything they do using this system would be secure, working with certified bodies, safe, easy. You know, it, yeah. it was really... Yeah. Those, those sound like small things, right? Like, does the user have to do it and set this thing up? But if, you, if you've followed this, the history of identity, there are a lot of well-intentioned you know, well projects that have failed because they ask too much of users. So Absolutely. a guiding principle for us was, is what we're proposing as easy or easier than Apple's commercial offering. Mm -hmm. So pay with Apple, sign in with Apple, share my driving license with Apple, yeah. pay later with Apple, whatever it is. And yeah. that, that's how you get adoption. That's how you make things attractive. But paired with obviously the other elements. Yeah, definitely. I think we're used to like people, you know, not really or vaguely knowing these ideas, these problems on the internet that we have, or like they know they shouldn't be using, you know, like certain certain companies or whatever, but they still do them because it's fast and because it's easy. Like we, we don't often, I guess, people don't have time for best practice when they're just normal consumers. And all the solutions at the moment are completely proprietary. So, mm -hmm. you know, if it's a password manager, you know, that some company is sitting on your data, there's been multiple data leaks with these companies, you know, all of the solutions at the moment require some actor to take on the responsibility and the liability. So, you know, Pay With Apple is fantastic. And they are taking on uh, you know, a fair bit of responsibility in, in managing that data for you, sent, you know, 
keeping hold of your information and then giving it out to people when they need it mm-hmm. uh, is in a tokenized form, which is a good step forwards. But yeah, when we came into this, it was, you know, changing that paradigm completely. It's not that it's, you know, tweaking around the edges of where we store this data. Mm-hmm. It's how do you get rid of that data in the first place? You know, the, no, the data never exists. On you're never the, yeah. sending a card number across the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's being replaced with a totally tokenized random string of numbers that only lets you do one thing in one situation with one company. So let's take a, a payment example. If you're shopping online today, you're asked for just a lot of information, card, card numbers, the same card number you use like everywhere on the internet, yeah. which is actually the, the, that's the most egregious part of the, the way the web works is that a bank sends you a 16 digit number on a piece of plastic to your house that you then type into your computer mm. every time you want something. Yeah, well, it's or autofill, I suppose. But, or, yeah. or it autofills, which is like a temporary kind yeah. of fix in the middle. Or you'd use Apple Pay, which is like a slightly better fix. Yeah. But the point is, you're, you're, currently you're entering all this information. Under the system we propose, that retailer just expresses its need as a request. So it says, I want payment, I want to be able to contact you, and I want to sign you in because I need to know who you are. Those requests go to your device. Your device matches them to mm-hmm. the entities that it knows is already in your life. So it goes, oh, you've got, three, you've got relationships with three banks, you've got six bank accounts. Right. You, know, you can sign in with your device, or you can sign in with some identity provider if you want. And we can contact you using your WhatsApp or your personal Gmail. And it, present, it presents those options to you in a very standardized way. So what the name of the company, name of the organization requests entities that can respond. Mm-hmm. You click, you decide which account you want to pay from, that you want to sign in. A lot of that would be pre-selected, we imagine. So you're really just clicking one button. And then what your device is doing, you know, it's not centralizing the data. This isn't a wallet or a trust or something. All it's doing is then routing that request to the bank. So yeah. the bank then received this request from a payment provider. Now in this universe, these entities are certified. So the bank knows that that request is coming from a certified organization and the, mm, okay. and the, and the retailer knows that it's, it's rec- making a payment request of a certified bank. And yeah. in, in other instances, like a driving license, it's only gonna be the DVLA that's certified to respond to a driving request. So mm. you, you've got a lot of assurance. And then, it, and then within a few you know, milliseconds, they get a response back. And every relationship in this network uses a different, talks about you in a different way. So it uses a different kind of alphanumeric string. So what, what they get back is, is uh, an identifier that only those two organizations use to talk about you and a token, a one-time payment token that only they can use. So it's essentially two like random numbers come back. Mm-hmm. But those two random numbers allow those two entities to do a very specific thing. If we compare that to the situation we're in currently, the data they're exchanging is allows anyone to transfer any amount of money out of your account at any time. Yeah. And that's why fraud is at 750 million pounds a year, Gosh. which is our friends and families yeah. losing money, often quite staggering amounts. And mm. with uh, James Wise, who's a trustee at Demos, who just wrote a paper about um, the threat of AI and fraud, right? Mm. You get a phone call, it sounds like it's from your son, they're asking for money. Like all this stuff's going to get very, very important very quickly. Yeah. Uh, not, you know, it, it already clearly yeah, is, but absolutely. it's going to become more important. And we need to just go in and fix that fundamental yeah. thing. Yeah. And related to that, I think another um, uh, term that came up a couple of times in the paper is legitimacy, uh, which I think has, you know, multiple meanings in, in kind of similar contexts that we talk about. One, I think, is like, as you say, the kind of knowing that you're son on the phone is legitimately your son on the phone. There's kind of an assurance quality to that, right? But I think in a broader sense as well, that the, the sense I got from, from the paper is we need governments to play a role as both legitimate and legitimizing of the organizations that they're certifying. And I noticed that um, 
I, Demos is a UK organisation, obviously this, I imagine, is sort of most applicable to the UK in the first instance, but clearly the nature of the internet suggests that we need everyone to play ball here. Mm. So I was wondering about the nature of certificate authorities here and how important you think that role is and how kind of scalable or just um, how implementable it is to have, you know, 193 sovereign countries all setting up certification authorities or whether this can kind of out of the box start in the UK and then spread further more organically over time. Yeah, so so the... In the paper, we say that obviously the standards are international. So the mm-hmm. way that you ask for something is the same in Germany or France or America, but the certification is national. Mm-hmm. So it's the German authority deciding what threshold they want to set for certain mm-hmm. requests, which if it's some health AI related thing will be high. Mm-hmm. If for France, you might want to set it lower, whatever. Um, and now again, there's precedent there. There's, you have, there's plenty of treaties that, that say if you've yeah. got a driving license in the UK, it applies in the US. So I imagine you would see uh, adequacy treaties mm. spring up, mm. but ultimately, it, it, that's the right role. That's the right bit for government to do in the debate. We mm. don't want them setting standards. You don't want them running any of the technology. What you do want them doing is saying, "We are going to kind of absolve you of liability." In the mm. same way that they, they they license you to drive a car, and mm-hmm. then you go to a car rental company, and the car rental company love that you turn up with a driving license, mm-hmm. and they can just give you a car without mm-hmm. having to worry about whether you can drive. And there's a there's you know, protection built in. You have to have insurance. This sort of thing. Um, but we we imagine it rolling out. Fortunately, the OS, the device manufacturers segment region by region. Yeah. So yeah. you would you would just you, you'd only show a citizen the button if that if that country had yeah exactly the exactly exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. so so and then the adequacy and things like that would follow. That, that so, makes sense. So it is therefore something that's kind of scalable, basically on a, on a global yeah. scale. We think yeah. probably starting with the payment industry. Mm. So. Yeah using the payment example and it cutting out the payment processes is uh finan- there's a lot of financial incentive to do that if you're a, if you're a company yeah. if yeah. you're turning over 10 million a year you're paying about a quarter of a million pounds to payment processes just to get that number to that bank mm-hmm. it's a big big opportunity yeah. they are they are honestly the expedians the mastercards the visas these are the these are the hmvs of today mm-hmm. they're the, they're the, and they i think they know it because especially expedient they're desperately trying to get direct consumer relationships they want you to create an account mm. so then they have a legitimate claim to all that data that they've amassed mm. and Presumably but it's, it's quite low take up on people actually creating accounts oh yeah yeah, yeah very low but yeah. incredibly valuable <laughs> business and but it, it should go away right the credit rating agency is mm. a is a is a outdated concept like we have smart banks now that know just exactly how financially sound we are and yet we don't have the language for that data to connect to the entity in our life that might need it mm. um yeah yeah and at the global level you mentioned the role of sort of international fora and, and for the i think for the standard setting bodies and you mentioned specifically a need for civil society to be kind of part of those conversations um, i guess the sort of software question is um tell us a bit about why that's important for civil society to be, to be at the table. But then the slightly harder question is, how do we ensure that they're not just kind of at the table, but that they ha- at the table they have the kind of voice that we'd want them to have? And how does that get balanced and weighed against uh, other people there? Yeah, I think um, when we were sort of coming up with the standards for it, we, we very quickly realised that, you know, it's one thing to have the kind of technical agreement, but it's another thing to have a system that actually works for normal people and you know as I was saying earlier about the usability stuff that's kind of been a focus throughout the whole thing and you know I think part of that has to be that the standards are not just technically minded that they're they're also around how the system works and etc etc. I think on the standards piece it's the first point is that there are a lot of trade bodies and uh, consortia and stuff that already exist and if you create a new way of doing something 
it makes sense for those people to be involved in coming up with that language. And then the civil society argument, now there is already a check and balance here because whatever standard you come up with then has to be, your companies have to be certified. So if the standards body comes up with something that's like super egregious, Mm -hmm. say it's like, you know, a standard for telling us what someone's sexuality is or something. Now, the certification authority may just go, no, we're not going to certify anyone to do that. So there is a built-in incentive to use Mm -hmm. privacy-preserving techniques. Mm -hmm. An example of that is um, the the payment one's an example. There's there's ways of um, communicating your address without actually giving your address to a company, right? You can encrypt it, you can tokenize it. There's all sorts of cool things you can do. And as you look through use case case by use case, you find Mm -hmm. ways to do that. The point of the civil society tier was to have a kind of House of Lords style function where if the AI industry got together and said, <laughs> here are some standards for asking for personal data for yeah. AI functions that the that tier could go, hold on, you haven't articulated like why this is useful to these mm-hmm. people and it could push that back or mm-hmm. it could veto. But obviously that's the sort of thing that gets yeah. hashed out yeah. later Near the time down the line. You kind of intimated this before, but it sounds like advertising you know, is potentially the potent, like the, the loss for these companies here, right? Or is in, I mean, the reason for this data is for personal advertising. And with this lack of data, there's this sort of advertising gap. And I'm not super concerned about, <laughs> I mean, from my perspective, great. From their perspective, um, what are they going to do? Um, are they going to have different kinds of advertising? Are we just going to see less ad- advertising on platforms? How does that work from the revenue perspective for these, for these companies? I think we really wanted there to be um, a realignment in the advertising industry. So, yeah, right. as, as we've sort of hinted at, at the moment, the kind of whole industry relies on these shadowy data brokers who are, yeah. you know, collecting oodles of information about you behind the scenes, profiling you and then selling ads based on, you know, renting your eyeballs, basically, to, to other companies. And... I think we really wanted to kind of, as I said, realign this. So it should be about real relationships that you have with a company. John always talks about the example of like, you know, if if I've got some sort of genes in my checkout at Arquette or whatever, Hmm. you know, that's a very useful bit of information that Arquette would love to use to, you know, retarget me across the the web and say, you know, you know, those genes are still, you know, they're on sale now. Why Hmm. don't you come back and check them out? Um, But that relationship should be based on the fact that I shop at that company and I'm happy for them to share that information. And we, we always kind of talk about the example offline, where you know if I'm in my local high street and chatting to the butcher about buying some stuff or about my family, you know if I then walked into the florist across the road and they were parroting that information, I'd be horrified. Disturbed, yeah. You know why are they gossiping behind my back? How has this happened? And yeah, on the internet, we're totally fine to accept that at the moment. And you know this gossip follows you around everywhere you browse. So yeah, in brief terms the way it works is a bid comes in that's mm-hmm. like identified by you and for a company to know whether they want to serve an ad to you at that time they have to look at loads of data which is the kind of experience piece so that they know they build up their own profile of you and your IP address and they go okay based on all this side data we know that you are going to want this so we're going to outbid everyone else mm. and so it's an incredibly open incredibly um, yeah. abusive system in the, the but in numbers terms, something like 40 to 60% of ad spend goes on that network of intermediaries. Mm. So if you're paying half your ad budget to get the ad to the, to the place where it's going to be seen, if you can create a system that does create these direct connections where yeah. you can just say, I want ads. I'm sending you a request for ads because I'm an ad-supported news site. And what you get back, direct from the provider, in some cases that might be a brand, 
if it's a if it's like a Facebook, then they are yeah. a ad platform, so they might serve ads for someone else. But you've only then got two, maximum three parties involved in the interaction. Mm. So it paints this picture of a of a kind of ad sector in which ad-supported media are making t- twice what they mm. the economics will iron out in some way other yeah. than it precisely. But it, 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 there's a lot of benefits to yeah. participants in disintermediating this like murky thing and. It becomes yeah. far more transparent for the user. You know, we, we envision that every ad would have, have the kind of uh, where it's come from just underneath in little text. So, you know, if, some, if Facebook have some very creepy insight about you that they're using, that, you know, other companies are using to serve ads to you, you, you would know that came from Facebook and you would be able to say, you know, well, I'm not going to allow ads from Facebook anymore. Turn that off. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we think the kind of second order effect is the quality of advertising would go up massively. Because you know, once you have that real risk of it, it's very easy for a consumer to switch off ads that they don't like. And ad fraud's a big thing as well, right? Just faking clicks, like actually knowing that you're getting an eyeball on an ad coming back directly. Mm. There's a lot of economic benefit, a lot mm. of privacy benefit. Yeah. That is, we've, we've learned so much about the report and thank you so much. I feel like we've been grilling you <laughs> and we've been really asking you all these questions that um, maybe you thought you'd left behind when you published the report. Um, is there anything else that you want to kind of say about the report? Anything that you hope listeners will take away from it? And even if they don't read the report, but they're excited about the future of this vision, basically. I think the hardest thing for people is this philosophical shift from yeah. thinking about thinking in terms of questions and answers and not about like data, because there's this big debate about where's the data. Mm. Tim Berners-Lee wants it to be on a hard drive under your desk. There's a whole kind of sovereign and self-sovereign identity movement. Yeah. And the, the point we make and the kind of, I think the most valuable contribution of the paper is to say, well, let's not think about it as data that's in a place. Let's think about it as questions and answers, which is actually kind of what the internet is. Yeah. It's not like, let's put all this information in a library that we visit. It's like, you ask for something, it gets routed to somewhere in the world where that information is and it gets fired back because the yeah. internet moves at the speed of light. And so there is a philosophical like, this is how personal information should work because it's how information works. <laughs> and I, I'm constantly kind of butting up against people who are stuck in the, the wallet model or the trust model or, or whatever it is. And yeah. there's a lot of benefit to, the benefits of doing this is uh, like the things we've discussed. You can substitute personal data for unique identifiers. You can use tokens, you can use claims. Can you drive a car? Yes, done. <laughs> mm. When you trust the entities involved. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a very different world. We're in sort of engagement phase at the moment. Yeah. So the challenge for us now is making sure that the people who are in power or coming into power, because we're, we're at a weird point politically mm-hmm. where basically yeah. everybody knows that there is going to be a new, gov- a new government for probably quite a while. And so um, think tank folks are like sharks circling around every, <laughs> everyone involved in labor policy. And, and uh, you know, we, we've been talking to these folks as well and, and trying to gauge whether there is this ambitious appetite for doing something like this. And so... I think, yeah, the thing I want people to take away is like, this could all work. This yeah. doesn't have to be broken. <laughs> you know, this could just function. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Can I pivot just very briefly for sure. something? Uh, one thing I mentioned before we started recording was that actually, John, you actually have a, a social platform of your own now. So we, I mean, we kind of talked about this um, with regards to ideas like trust. And Charlie, you've mentioned the, you know, the high street, like the physical high street a few times and like local area, I think being really important. So um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about Nearly? So my background is in startup world. I had a company in the US and that's where a lot of the sort of design focused stuff Uh comes from. And once you've started a startup and run it, it's quite hard to leave that behind. So I took this excursion and, you know, for the last 10 years or whatever it was (laughs) into public policy land. But Mm. 
the ideas still tick over and with uh, with nearly we built a messaging app uh-huh. instead of putting you in groups with friends and families and colleagues whatever it is it puts you in group threads for places with people around you so the local area you're in so, yeah or whatever the thread is tagged to so yeah. uh, on the way here I could see as I passed us through a station the, the, you know yesterday the trains were delayed or <laughs> I can uh, one of my so this was based on something I built in the US that was quite popular and the, the lightning bolt moment was I was in the queue for cinema in LA and at this point we had about 10,000 users and I get a notification saying, uh, is anyone else in this queue? Now the tool was a, a map, you could write something, it would leave it on the map and it would notify people nearby. And I was like, we're in the queue. And it turned out they were just these very sweet LA girls at the front of the queue, they were like, come to the front of the queue. And we just like had a chat and it broke me out of the bubble of friends and followers. And yeah. I think we're at an interesting point in the technology sector where for 20 years, tech companies have connected us with everyone we've ever met. <laughs> and yet we're more lonely than we've ever mm. been. Yeah. But I think it's come at that push has come at the cost of like, our relationship to where we are and that was one of the big realizations during covid for me was like physical stuff people <laughs> places Tangible. yeah, yeah things you can grab and hold and mm. you know yeah. it's like the opposite of the metaverse um, yeah. and so we see this social context has been undervalued and overlooked and that we, we think there's so much you can do in that space from communication to dating to games to commerce that just like yeah. is anchored in the minds of users as what is near me right mm. now that i can do um, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's the that's the aim with that, and, but I'm you know different hats. Got, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you've had a really busy well last ten years, <laughs> but certainly been. Not... Well, the paper published and we launched nearly in the same week. I think. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it was oh just one of those things that just wasn't planned, but yeah, came together, no, it so. sounds great. I love that idea. I was just talking to someone the other day about how great it is to have an app. If you moved somewhere and you wanted to get to know people, there actually really isn't that much you can do. Like you know, there are dating apps, but there aren't really quite as many making friends apps. Well, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I'm a bit of a foodie, I would say. I think Josh is well. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> one of the things that I've really enjoyed with Nearly is that you can turn up at a restaurant. Oftentimes someone's been there before and they'll have said like, you know, oh, this item on the menu is like the one you should try or whatever. And that kind of insight is, you know, really hard to get. You know, uh, I don't really know another, you know, you c- you're not going to read a Google review and be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to try that basically. It's like Yelp for normal people. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> nearly, there's no, like, there's like no. Yelp's past. It's had it, you know, yeah. I'm not sure when it was in, but it certainly kind of, I don't read Yelp reviews basically. There's yeah. no, on nearly, there's no sign up or login. So, you don't need an account, you don't need a profile. It's just, you that just is... download it and it drops you into this thread. Yeah. And you can see what's mm. been there. The other so... day, there was a uh, Farringdon station got uh, evacuated and everyone was like, what's going on? What's going on? And I, I went on nearly and, you know, someone had said, Oh, it's actually a fire alarm, so like it's probably going to be a shower till the fire brigade come and everything. That's great. So because of that information, yeah, I knew yeah. wasn't going to get in in the next five minutes. So I walked down the road to another station and mm. went on my way. But yeah, you know, it's taking people offline, it's quite, mm. yeah, it's quite nice. Yeah. To me, the most appealing thing is actually what you said about not having like a login or anything, because that is yeah one of the most annoying things about getting apps now. Yeah, so we don't care who you are; we yeah. just care yeah. where you are. It's and it turns out that where you are tells us a lot about who you are, <laughs> right? Because mm. you you live with people, sim- you know, you live in similar parts of London and go to similar bars and restaurants. So. Yeah, and then exactly. when you leave that place, you leave the group. So it's, yeah. Um, and Charlie, as for you, back to the grindstone of the PhD, <laughs> is it? How, how how's that going? And what's it like to be? Adjusting back, back with your head in the books. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's one of those projects that you know I, I don't think you sort of fully disconnect from. Um, you mm. know, we, the, as as John mentioned, the engagements ongoing with various groups. That's really exciting. We we've been having meetings. The other day, we were talking to Witch, the consumer advocacy group. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I think those conversations will continue. So it's a, a porous uh, return to the default, <laughs> um, and yeah, it's been great. I think it's clarified 
some of my ideas around uh, policy stuff though, which yeah. will definitely filter back in. You know, I think when I'm talking about the, the UK trust framework and digital identity. And this is a problem because Charlie's very involved in the identity work and with the paper we've proposed a radical <laughs> shift from the way the system is. So it's kind of coming back to your default knowing that like, you know, potentially the whole thing's become irrelevant, but. <laughs> or it gives you the motivation to finish and then do the next thing, which I think is kind of important at the end of a deal. Well, and it nods to this temporal thing in policy where where you want to be and where you are can be mm. a long way. You know, you might get six reshuffles between and, you know, two new governments and an extra prime minister. And so, it's, it's, you know, I can see how tough it is for civil servants and, and for people actually trying to craft this stuff to think in a constructive, like, long-term way. And mm. we sometimes walk in and go, why don't you just do this? And they're yeah. like... How do you fathom the next 10 years, especially given the 10 years we've just had, which yeah. have been mm. so, yeah, all over the place, basically. Yeah. The, the one year we've just had. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Well... I think it's been speaking for both of us it's been great fun and I really know. insightful we've so much absolutely thank you so much for your time if people want to catch up more with you about the report or just find out more about the project where can they find you so I am John J Nash on Twitter J-O-N-J-A-S-H uh -huh. for as long as we have Twitter anyway <laughs> exactly while it's still up until you hit your rate limit um, <laughs> and then the the, dem uh, the papers on our on Demos' site demos.co.uk yeah we'll share it um, what's your Twitter handle Charlie I'm just checking <laughs> <laughs> figure it out <laughs> uh, my, my Twitter handle is Charlie H-R-Y Smith yeah uh, Charlie Harry Smith so yeah yeah and uh, yeah we're always available over email as well I think oh and download nearly report. yeah I I've was got, just gonna say I've that I've got god mode turned on so I get notifications for every message oh so Come chat to me on nearly. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, we'll, we'll, we'll make a pitch for that. I was going to suggest it, but I don't know how it worked. I didn't want to say something really we're in a like We're in a kind of like soft launchy phase. Okay, It'll great. kick off more at September, October, uh -huh. but probably mostly with universities. That's going to be our approach. Yeah, so. that's a really good idea, actually. Yeah. That's a really, really If you're a first year student and you've just arrived in dorms yeah. and you don't know what's happening, then I think uh, it'll, it'll be, that'll be where we'll yeah. focus our attention. Well, I'm not a first year oh. student, but I'll still get nearly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thanks so much. And yeah. To the listeners, see you next time. Bye. Bye.